space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second, contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, to the 20th century, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another Temporal Trek episode. We are on chrono date, as I seem to be thinking that that's a good idea on uh, Twitter. Uh, season 3, episode 10 of the podcast and season 1, episode 8 of Star Trek Enterprise, the watch along. Now, this is another special episode because I'm not going to do it alone. So you listeners do not have to listen to me waffle on for 45 minutes or longer. I'm really sorry. Uh, I have actually got a, a good guest, a fantastic guest, someone who will actually raise the bar of this uh, a very low po- podcast this is low brow entertainment now we're going into the upper echelons we've got an academic man himself uh, I'm just going to pump him up on my uh, little uh, thing here incoming transmission uh Dan, Dan, are you on the other end? I am, yes. Hello. Hey, fantastic. It's not me talking to myself, listeners. Uh, This is a different Dan, and it's not a different Dan H. This is a Dan Huckfield. Completely different to me. Honestly, I'm not doing a voice. Uh, He's also from Kent, I have just found out, which is fantastic. Uh, Dan, introduce yourself to the listeners. This is the first time we've heard from you. Um, How would people know you? Okay, well, yeah, my name is Daniel Huckfield. Um, I have a podcast of my own called academic trek it's quite new um there's about nine or ten episodes and it's on slight hiatus at the moment because of uh, i'm finishing an ma and i'm doing i'm busy at work and stuff so but there's nine episodes and basically what i do part of my ma is that i've um r- writing a dissertation based around star trek or a theme of star trek and it occurred to me that actually there was loads of you know loads of people doing research using trek in teaching and i just thought wouldn't it be wonderful to talk to people about their research and get a sort of i don't know quite a different perspective you know a more sort of i don't think more critical is the right word because i think we're, we're often quite critical but an, an academic an academic perspective really so yeah academic trek on twitter academic trek 47 and that's where you can find me excellent and yes listeners you do need to give it a listen it's fantastic to think that there's so many different ways into Trek um, all the guests we've had have been fantastic on this show like there's always someone who finds Trek in a different way or sees Trek in a different way so to see someone who's then taken that one step further and is now analyzing Star Trek and mining it for all of the the useful phenomena that can be brought out of it uh, whatever um, whatever noumena you can bring out of it uh, to call back to my very early philosophy days at university uh, try to think of anything that you can mine and practice practically use whether it's you know it's just not academic episodes we're not talking about uh philosophical uh discourse we're talking about there was medical uh there was a medical lecturer that you had on one one episode uh, just uh, fields yep. that i wouldn't even see a crossover you know other than the fact that there might be a doctor on board the show there is no crossover there that i could easily see and it's just fascinating to listen to the stories of how they got it in there um i always you know i used to cheat in philosophy and use star trek yeah. episodes in my essays yeah. so there you go 
Yeah, well, what you've discovered now is it's not cheating. It's You're allowed to do it. It's amazing. Yay! Validation! <laughs> That's right. Excellent. Um, so that is, uh, how would they actually find you on Twitter? What would be the, the handle to search for it? It's at AcademicTrek47. Excellent. Just to make sure that we've got that in there. Uh, how did you get into Trek? As the new guest on the show, what was it that actually sparked the interest into Trek? I've stolen this question from your podcast. <laughs> um, you know, it's really nice to answer the question actually, and and the honest answer is I don't know because it's it's just been part of my life as long as I can remember. You know, I, I remember I must have been six, seven maybe, and watching reruns on BBC Two and stuff, and it, it, it's just been part of my my sort of consciousness really. And um, and then TNG come along and I started watching it from the start. So and ever since then I've just really continued doing that really. So. I, I don't know. It's it just appealed for whatever reason. It just appealed to me and just struck a chord, and it's always has done. Mm. No, I I know exactly how you feel. I, I can remember how I got into it and like what was my first episode and things like this. But it really has just always been there. There's always something around. Um, you know, I I struggle to feel how it would have been to be maybe a young boy, girl, whatever back in the '60s when it was first around. It wasn't in the culture. It wasn't in your DNA. Um, and you were discovering it fresh because, you know, everyone knew the the one with the whales when I was growing up or everyone knew something, yeah. you know, beam me up Scotty or something, whether they were using it as a slur and trying to bully me at school. I don't know. But, you know, there was a reason there was something going on. Someone knew about it. Um, so, yeah, that's a perfect. Yeah, I can completely agree with that and completely see where that comes from. Um, you're uh, coming in on Enterprise. So this is your first episode with us and we're coming through to Enterprise. Thoughts on Enterprise in general? Where did you come into it? Was it like there on first day, or was it something you came to later? No, I, I've, I watched. I've watched all the series from the start since TNG, um, and um, yeah, I don't know. It's really funny because I was thinking about this today, thinking about doing the recording and stuff, and um, you know, part of my I don't think not my living, but my my interest is to to critically evaluate Star Trek. Um, but actually, you know, I just I just love Star Trek. So, you know, I, I think Enterprise, I don't think Enterprise is the best Star Trek, to be fair, but I still love it. <laughs> so, I'm, yeah. so it's a strange one, really, because, you know, I hear a lot of criticism of Enterprise and I think um, some of that is fair. Absolutely. And some of that of, of Star Trek in general is fair. But, um, yeah, I just I just really enjoyed it right from the start, really. I I. I, I yeah, I've watched it. Funny enough, it's on at the moment on in in the living room, <laughs> and my partner's watching um, Distant Orange. In fact, which is probably my favourite um, episode of Voyager. So mm. Star Trek is always on, you know, and um, so yeah, I just I don't know. It, yeah, I enjoyed it from the start. First season, we go on to that, but but generally, yeah. <laughs> So, on that note, why this episode? What appealed about this particular episode to you? You know what? I don't know is the honest answer. It wasn't anything that particularly <laughs> appealed. It was available. So that was one of the reasons mm, that's that I, true. I liked it. Um, and I just thought, why not? You know, it's one of those episodes that isn't, you know, it isn't sort of held up as brilliant. It isn't derided as absolutely awful. It's one of those sort of typical first season Star Trek episodes in lots of ways. And, and I thought, well, why not do that one? That'd be interesting. And, and I quite like the some of the, the themes that I think we come on to. Um, interest me to a degree as well so it just felt like yeah quite a nice 
introduction to doing this podcast with you, really. Mm. No, that's a good choice. Yeah, I, I, I love honest answers. You don't have to inflate yourself. It's all right. It's all good. Um, you don't have to lie to me. It's okay. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it was the one available. So yes, that is the practical reason. Um, but this episode to me also just going back to it i really didn't remember a lot of this episode there were bits and pieces that were in sort of the back of my mind and i was like oh i think i remember that um you know i seem to remember that scene going on i didn't realize it was this episode i had really like blanked this one out and there's nothing wrong with it like there's nothing that uh, watching it i was like oh no that's terrible i don't want to see that again i would actually go back to this episode um I, you know i don't want to tip my hand and give away my rating for later but I enjoyed this. This was fun. Uh, there was a lot to mine and a lot as yeah. we've been discussing because we've been going back and forth trying to, you know, talk about uh, themes that we could generate out of this. And there's a bit of confusion. Like there's a very un unusual story going on here as we will probably discuss in a moment. But it, it it's not yeah. typical and it doesn't quite scream what the message is, but it's enjoyable and it's something mm. you can come back to. So on that note, shall we get into it? Why not? Eh? Why not? Exactly. Right. Um, as always, uh, with these episodes, this is a full episode rewatch. We are not stopping for any time jumps. There is no time travel here. Although it does kind of feel like there's time travel going on in this episode, as the characters even mention a little bit later. But at timestamp zero minutes and zero seconds, we are getting into the episode. We open up on a little briefing scene, the little briefing room at the back of the bridge. Uh, all the officers are around the desk and Archer comes in and says, is there anything of, uh, you know, valid note to take in? You know, something we can stop off and have a look at. And they start off with a supernova revenant. And uh, OK, that sounds, that sounds pretty interesting. OK, looking at the screen, there's a nice little graphic. It all kind of matches up. Um, then, oh, there's three neutron stars. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Ooh, do we go over here? And it's like, yeah. Okay, that, that's really interesting. That's fine. Why, why, why are we bringing it up? Uh, and then all of a sudden, we've got a whole civilization of 500 million people. Um, this was a great callback for me because as I've been going through uh, in chronological order, there's a, a weird thing that the Vulcans do and the Ferengis have done once as well, where they order things in the wrong way in importance they start off with the really weird stuff so like root beer tv uh chocolate whatever and then suddenly go straight up to atom bombs and civilizations of 500 million at the end of the list and even archer calls it out in this scene of like why not prioritize it the other way around so it's it's a weird little trope that seems to have come up out of nowhere that i didn't even think would happen in star trek but that does happen in this scene um thoughts on the whole briefing scene uh any any thoughts before we get into the title sequence um it's, it's really interesting to me actually um it's a, it's a strange one because it what it does is it it very cleverly sort of condenses that that hatred i don't know if hatred is maybe too strong a word but that dislike of the vulcans from the humans but what i find slightly i don't know if disappointing is the right word but it, it you know the Vulcans have been on Earth for a hundred odd years, and other species are there, the Denobians, and, and you know the other species there as well. And so, people in Starfleet would have sort of been used to, I think, working with individuals of Vul individual Vulcans, individual Denobians, but they seem to sort of not be able to split to pole from their sort of dislike of the Vulcans in general, you know. And I find that. 
I understand it sort of maybe to, 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 you know, keep the drama moving and keep that, but it, it feels a shame. It doesn't feel realistic to me. It doesn't feel how people would work with individuals. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's, it, it, it seems weird that they are venting onto Pole, and this is something we've seen in the last couple of episodes as well. Um, I've been joking around that it's workplace bullying. Uh, every now and then there's a dig here and a dig there. But there is a genuine question here. Like, you know, how can you go about your day treating someone like this and thinking that that's okay? Um, you know, maybe that's a first world perspective. You know, that's, you know, just me uh, getting used to, you can work with anyone, uh, you know, no matter who they are. Um, not that's not easy for everybody fair enough they might have their hang-ups and prejudices but given that starfleet is given this exploration mission that humanity has had a hundred years to improve itself has been mentioned in previous episodes why they can't cut a little bit more slack for the science officer uh it just seems very weird now i completely agree where you're coming from on that there's a weirdness to how this scene is blocked as well um, or at least how the lines are delivered. I wasn't sure if all the officers are in on the joke and they're having a joke on Archer or whether they eventually turn the joke on to Paul. Like, are they having a laugh at Paul because she gets it in the wrong order as far as humans are concerned? Or are they playing a joke and it's a practical joke, but Paul wasn't in it? You know, they saw the briefing and realized she's done it wrong, didn't correct her, and they're actually playing a joke on Archer as well. Where would you sort of land on that? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I thought that you can see the sort of smirk of um, smirk in the background and stuff, you know. And I, I don't know. I think I think they were in there early before the captain, and they sort of realised what was happening and, and left it. And and I think that's a joke and to Paul's expense, really. They could have, you know, they could have said five minutes before Archer walked in, you know, actually, why not? We're just we're talking about the planet because he's going to like that. So mm. I think it's yeah, it's again, it's another example of that sort of yeah, bullying. I think is a good word for it, really. You know. Right, before we go into any more scenes, let's go to the Enterprise theme music. Uh, thoughts? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Go. <laughs> um, I made some notes, and for the opening credits, I put, ah! <laughs> so that sort of sums up what I think. <laughs> I've learned most, to live with it. Most I've, eloquent it can get. <laughs> I've learned to live with it, and it's got a sort of, a, a, a kind of like to it, I suppose, now, and you sort of accept it, but no, it's... I, yeah, I don't think I'm breaking new ground by suggesting it's not my favourite. Hey, it's controversial choice, controversial here on, on the Temple Trek. We don't like the Enterprise theme tune. Uh, yeah, it's not my favourite. Uh, it's uh, one of probably not the worst. Um, I, it's still for me, even though I love DS9. DS9 is still a bit slow for me. I, I kind of want it to be a bit more punchy. Um, and even though Voyager isn't my favourite series, as I've said in previous episodes, it's one of my favourite theme tunes because it is punchy. It's it's yeah. go up and get there. And yeah, Enterprise doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. No, I mean, I, I get I get the words, I get the words, not necessarily the tune. <laughs> no, and it's just I, I don't I don't particularly like the images. Particularly, it's all a bit. I don't know. I, I like what you were saying about Voyager. I love that thing where the, the Voyager the Voyager sort of goes through the the ring of of dust and stuff. You know, it's lovely and and very mm. I don't know operatic is maybe the wrong word, but very dramatic and and beautiful, I suppose. Whereas this is all a bit like, oh, really? You sort of you know you left it to the, the intern to sort this bit out, didn't you? You know. 
Find me a bunch of clips on, uh, you know, the o- easy uh, open access r- website. There we go. Oh, ships. HMS Enterprise. There we go. Fantastic. Let's shift that one in. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, there we go. Um, I-, I look forward to one day finding all of the clips of all of us reacting to the uh, uh, to the intro sequence. So all my guests, I'm just going to put it into one episode on uh, Temple Trek Nexus Nights and just say that this is how we feel about the theme tune. Um, right. Okay, then. Moving on, we get into uh, low Earth orbit around, or low Earth, uh, not low Akali uh, orbit, I should say, around this particular planet. Um, They're on the bridge and they're asking, who do we actually hail? Uh, We're listening to loads of very low frequency uh, signals. Uh, There's dozens of cities. It seems to be pre-industrial. They're sort of looking around and they look at uh, zooming in on the ground on the planet and they've got some very good sensors because it not only zooms into the coastline not only zooms into a little clipper ship which trip instantly recognizes that's pretty good going to recognize it from the top given that most uh, ships can be recognized from the side only but there we go and and uh, he then says right focus in on that street focus in on that house focus in on that one woman who just happens to look up wonderful bit of timing there hoshi well done um it's it's a very weird thing again where hoshi is asked to man the camera and i'm not entirely sure why a translator is in charge of the camera the security cameras if anything which probably reed should be doing so i think he's shirking his duties a bit there um but any thoughts on them discovering the planet and how they found out about it what i liked about this actually was that I think it, what it really captured was how excited it they were and how excited it would have been, you know, to be the first out there and exploring and and seeing this this planet full of people, you know. And I think that that's really good because that's how it should be. As we move forward through sort of TNG and stuff, it becomes much more. Oh, it's another planet, you know. Oh, I've been to seven hundred and forty-seven planets, you know. And but this, I think this really captures really well that that excitement you would feel, you know. And I think also with Hoshi, I think um, she's very excited as well. And I think that that's really nice because, you know, in the previous episodes, she's certainly been, I don't excited is the word I would use for Hoshi. I think, you know, nervous is the, the, probably the general term I would use. Um, so that I think I really like as well. I think, you know, that, that, that felt very realistic to me and very real. Mm. You see her at her console and deciphering all the languages and she's you know getting in on the jokes she's recognizing what they're saying so she has a giggle to herself because she's perhaps heard a joke for the first time or an akali joke uh, i wonder what that might be uh you know uh, two akali walk into a pub i don't know and uh you know i'm not gonna uh, be uh, uh biased against any regions of the akali homeworld so you know uh, I don't want to get into trouble there, but it, it, it would be the first thing you'd do. I mean, you find jokes, you find humour, uh, and that's your way into a culture. Um, whenever we were doing a French class at, uh, at secondary school, uh, the French teacher would always tell us a French joke to start us off with. And it, it put me in mind of that. It, it was always just something fun that she would do. Uh, and it, it kind of broke the ice it, it got us started for the lesson uh that this isn't just you know something you have to learn you know and then you go oh let's tell a joke why did the ch- chicken cross the road oh this is a living language this is something people are using this is a culture 
Um, and it's it's just fantastic to see her doing that. Uh, we get the we get the first mention of a sort of prime directive standard protocol for the Vulcans from T'Pol before going down. Any thoughts on introducing what could be the prime directive? Yeah, it's interesting because it's exactly what I wrote down. In fact, mention of prime, prime directive, and it is. It's sort of you're right. It isn't the prime directive in name, but all but name it is. And I think that's really very interesting. Again, is that you know that's an understanding of canon certainly. That's um, something where they've, you know, they've tweaked it slightly to to take it back away from. It isn't prime directive straight away. It's something else. It's you know the Vulcan um, protocol. So I like that as well. I think you know it's very clever and and and, and I suppose respectful of the canon. Mm. Mm. And it's something we sort of had mentioned earlier in one of the other episodes, Strange New World, where T'Pol was very mindful of the Enterprise coming in and destroying uh, the Novan culture. Uh, uh, as well, not strangely well, Terra Nova. How could I get the episode wrong? Uh, Terra Nova uh, and uh, changing the Novan culture. Uh, so it was always in her mind, and now she's explicitly stating this is something Vulcan ships do. Um, but Archer does come back with sort of a justified response in that they send, or they can send a probe. You know, why did they bother sending the Enterprise if they weren't going to go down to these planets? Um, do you think that that kind of justifies their actions? Do you think that maybe that's a bit foolhardy on Archer's part? I, I think it it's understandable, certainly. And I think it does justify to a degree. I think, um, you know, it's a it would be a lesson learned, I think, as we probably go on to think about. But, um, you know, at, the moment, at that point in time, absolutely, it makes sense. You know, there's, there's no history of, of first contacts and stuff, and certainly first contacts with um, pre-industrial societies and stuff. So... You know, they they would be excited. They wouldn't sort of think of the consequences necessarily. So I think it it makes again it makes sense within the context. Definitely, mm. it's also sort of a, an argument that's lobbied against uh, NASA or any other space agency at the moment. Where uh, you know the argument is, why should we go to Mars when we can send probes? Um, you know, it, the additional cost of having to send people. Um, you know, we've got problems on Earth is always the argument I always hear, but there is that inspirational side to exploration there is the the side that pushes ingenuity by sending people instead of robots you know we've currently got mars the the planet full of robots um and that's not doing anything it doesn't uh, excite people and this as you said uh, it gets them excited they are learning a language they're seeing a culture they're stepping back in time as trip mentions as well it's almost like seeing their own history yeah i agree i mean i agree i think um Again, what we're seeing is maybe the differences or uh, an attempt to sort of really f make the differences obvious between humans and Vulcans, because mm. Vulcans would just send a probe. They probably wouldn't even bother sending a probe, to be honest with you. They'd be looking at the uh, the proton stars took five light years away, to be honest with you. Um, but it, again, it reinforces that idea that you know humans are different to Vulcans, and and that, that sits quite nicely, again, in, in the sort of the run of the episodes we come up to so far and stuff so and it, it's sort of fortunate in this episode that there is something that is unusual on this planet um had the vulcans not sent anything had the enterprise not been out there um this particular episode would never have happened uh there, there would have been no resolution to what the problem eventually is uh so it's really lucky so far that all of the enterprise's missions they just happened to be there when things were really going bad um so there we go you know fortunate uh fate uh, was it uh, fortune favors the bold there we go um 
there's a little briefing from Topol as she's doing research on the uh, culture, and she suggests that the least uh, problematic landing site would be somewhere near a farm uh, to reduce cultural contamination. Uh, and Archer just flippantly says, oh, this must be why aliens used to land in farms all the time. Uh, again, another callback to our pilot episode uh, back in Broken Bow. We have the Klingon who crash lands in a farm. Uh, but it's a nice little throwaway line, but there's a lot going in in that. If you unpack it, it's the idea that did the whole alien conspiracy thing happen in the Star Trek universe? How long did that carry on for? Are they still thinking that they used to be attacked by little grey men? Uh, or is it uh, orange men, if they think the Ferengi were actually the ones doing the abductions? Uh, any thoughts on little grey men and farms? Yeah, I like that, actually. I thought that was really clever. Nice little thing, you know, just... We don't often see, and, and you know, I'm not pretending to have an encyclopedic knowledge of Star Trek, but... We don't often see those sort of tropes or, or cultural things from the 20th century being really sort of dropped in. They're little, you know, in jokes almost. I mean, I think you know, um, there's a bit on Voyager with with um, um, well, my brain's gone now. It's typical. Um, Paris, Tom Paris, you know, being yeah. In, yeah, being into sort of you know hot rods and stuff. But this, I really like this actually. It was like a little sort of meta nod to the audience, really. You know. <laughs> which I don't think we've, we've seen before in, in Trek really very much. Yeah. And, it, you know, this is the early 2000s when the show's coming out. So that X-Files bubble is still growing at this point. You know, it's still going. Um, I think we had the X-Files movie at this point, if I remember right. It's a long time since I've watched those. Uh, but, you know, that's still in the zeitgeist. That's still in the culture. Uh, so to make a little flippant remark uh, about it uh, just made fun. Uh, it was really good. Um we get flocks the makeup artist uh you know it, it's not even a protocol that we go down to the planet and try and hide ourselves but he had a full makeup kit ready to go uh, good old flocks well done to you um and his skills are like fantastic you know trust a surgeon's hands uh any thoughts because uh, this is a callback to other episodes in star trek from the 60s where you know we saw kirk dressed as a romulan and so many others and picard dressed as a romulan and everyone else seems to be a romulan but you know uh, this is something we've seen in star trek before but this is the first time we're seeing it chronologically you know people actually sure. taking the time to disguise themselves um any thoughts on um, you know how miraculous yeah, it is. It is miraculous. You're right. I hadn't really thought of that, but you're absolutely right. But, I, you know, to me, any scene with Phlox in it is generally a good scene. I like I like Phlox. He's one of my favourites. He's He brings a real sort of, I don't know, je ne sais quoi to it, you know, and real energy. Um, and, yeah, I like that. You're right in the way he just sort of, you know, as he whips out his, his um, prosthetics and away we go sort of thing. So, yeah, again, you're right, though. It is a nice little nod to previous trek as well so yeah yeah, yeah good scene <laughs> the uh this is then uh, leading into the scene uh, the the whole uh, makeup session is interrupted by topol who then says we found something on the planet that doesn't quite belong there uh we get the antimatter reactor is detected for the first time uh we now have a mission uh, before, it was just going to be send them down, have a look around, see what we can find out. But now there is a genuine puzzle that's going on. And again, very fortunate that the Enterprise happened to be out there when this happened. Uh, 
they call down to the quartermaster we're going to need additional clothes so not only has Phlox got a magic makeup kit but there's a quartermaster who just happened to have the right kind of material that would fit to an Akali costume it's almost like someone's writing this this is very very strange uh, any thoughts on the quartermaster would you like to meet the quartermaster that would have been fun uh, yes, I agree. I, I would do actually. Yeah, I thought I wrote that down again. Quartermaster. I mean, where did he come from? And more importantly, where did he go? Because <laughs> I don't know that he's ever um, ever brought into service again. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, that's the thing. I suppose you know. Again, coming back to my sort of aspect where I try to talk critically and sort of academically. You know, at the end of the day, these are stories written for entertainment. And I think sometimes you know we can forget that as, as quite sort of super fans, you know, but they are entertainment and they are, you know, they, they don't, they don't always make sense, but yeah, I, I found that quite amusing. <laughs> it did make me think that there, there is a very famous finale episode to enterprise, which people don't like talking about where uh, it turned out, we found out who chef was, but we never found out who quartermaster was as far as I know. Uh, and I don't think we ever meet the quartermaster. So is that somebody else running the enterprise program and somebody else is going through this at the same time as Riker? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, we'll have, we'll have to see. Maybe it's it just turns out they were running. <laughs> She's in the next holodeck along running the quartermaster program. <laughs> they're stitching together a costume oh god they're going on another mission come on there we go <laughs> oh, is it, oh is it a cross stitch or is it double not oh no um there we go um that would be fantastic if they're both on the titan running the exact same program at the same time one's a chef and one is the quartermaster that would be brilliant um clothing itself so once they're actually dressed up we kind of get a, a sort of weird fusion of medieval meets renaissance which quite near sort of turn into a georgian look um but it's very european looking and it, to me it felt like it's something new even though there are a handful of episodes i can think of from tos tng where there was a medieval feel to it this set seemed like the first time where we'd have a proper delve into a culture which is practically medieval. Um, Star Trek had always favoured something a little bit more recent uh, so they could use the, the props from the nearby studio, whether it be Nazis, whether it be Romans, whether it be something like that. We'd never quite had a proper medieval go through. Um, they always looked like aliens plus uh, you know, they, they didn't quite have that same feel, but this felt down and dirty. And these were clothes that were, un, you know, unfit. Uh, Trip even mentions his boot, uh, be, you know, being uncomfortable. Um, any thoughts on the costumes themselves? You know, did you feel that it, they were trying to go for a broad appeal or there was a specific thing they were trying to do? I think it's really interesting, actually, that, that idea, because, again, we come back to sort of breaking the fourth wall, I suppose you could say, where we... You know the, the 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 horrible truth is from my my research with my my ma really is that they probably got it because it was available from the props department that's the the horrible truth you know but as far as i, I quite like i quite like the, the setting i think it's you know it, it, again i mean it's very eurocentric as you said um it very i mean what would be really interesting and really sort of daring and maybe they could do you know, maybe in, in Discovery or something like that now with the budgets and stuff, is to really try to create an an alien culture. What we're seeing really is a replication of, you know, European medieval culture, effectively. 
um, which is much easier as far as props go and, and all that sort of stuff, costumes and stuff. Um, so that would be really interesting. But yeah, I mean, again, it's it's quite nice to. Uh, it's a, it's it's a very in some ways it's a very TOS episode in that they go down to the planet, they have a sort of a thing to deal with, and they deal with it, and they they go away again. So that was mm. quite nice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely see that. Yeah, it, it it's a very simple episode when you really break it down to what happens, this, this, and this, and then off they go on the merry way. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely see that. It, it, I wondered if because they were going for European centric in some of the the some of the the themes I was trying to pull out of this episode were they trying to make a direct link to perhaps colonialism, perhaps the expansion of if not the British Empire at least. A European empire um, was there something they were trying to tell us through the costumes but you're probably right it is just down to uh, you know they, they had a few costumes left over just down the road let's just bring them over the costume department just need to make a few alterations so that they all fit in it and then we're all good uh, I mean it's interesting you bring up the colonialism thing because one of the things I made a note of was that you know what we find out is there's only one power source on the planet or one one um, unusual power source on the planet and that got me thinking actually about you know why is there only you know it's a whole planet we can assume it's more or less earth size or you know around about that so why is there only one person down there sort of taking advantage of these these sort of pre-industrial people why isn't there like Ferengi and 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 Klingon and you know and all that stuff really um so that, that I find again sort of interesting and and I guess again, it's to do with telling the story to a degree. You know, if it was the whole planet, then we'd have problems, you know. But um, yeah, that's really interesting that with colonialism. You know, we're, we're seeing certainly we're seeing an advanced, a more advanced um, species or, or population exploiting another population. But what we don't see is the sort of overt um, control and domination that we maybe see in, in Earth's history. Um, so there's a, definitely a difference there. Um, but I think you're right. I think he acts as a, I don't know, if a, a, a sort of proxy for for colonial power or a proxy for some kind of of exploitation. Certainly, yeah. As as the episode goes on, mm. yeah, and uh, perhaps them trying to blend in makes them just as guilty of that colonialism. You know, that that is Starfleet imposing their will. Or is it trying to comment on perhaps that, you know, the Starfleet are representing morality coming in and questioning colonialism. And it is the Malorians who are, you know, the bad guys. They are the colonialists that, um, you know, Star Trek is trying to comment on. Uh, this is where it gets kind of muddled for me for through the episode. As you say, there isn't that overt colonialism. They are not coming in as an invading force. They are not uh, you know, making themselves known to the indigenous people, even though if they were, they could easily subdue them. They could easily take this Viridium and get out uh, without any questions. Um, why the Viridium is only in one spot on the planet, uh, you know, if that is the assumption we can make, that that's why there aren't other power sources, that there was just this one thing. And then Garrus, who is either on the orders of his own government or perhaps a, a businessman in his own right and has cornered this market. He's suddenly got a supply of Viridium. He doesn't want to tell anyone. Um, you know, there are things we can justify in our heads as to why other people aren't there, but it still doesn't get past that idea of 
why are they there you know what is their int- ultimate intention are they going to just steal the viridium never tell anyone and leave or are they eventually then going to colonize and take over um which made me sort of think more what if it's more like the conquistadors who tried to befriend the aztecs and the incas who were pretending to be gods to begin with so again they made themselves known to the population but they took as much gold as they could and when they started to push back that's when you have the uh, overt takeover uh, of the South Americas. Um, so I was wondering if that was what they were going for. But again, like you say, there isn't that overt point. Uh, the Enterprise steps in before it gets to that point. Perhaps it would have gone that way. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. And I think um, the other thing to, to think about is with the Enterprise, you know, that's a very colonial action is to decide, well, this is wrong. We're going to sort it out. And we Absolutely. look at, you know, where, where we are now. You know, so what we're seeing is is two, you know, sort of almost two opposing colonial. We're not seeing a a sort of freedom fighter. I don't know what, what the right word would be, but you know, we're not seeing a a sort of well, yeah. How am I going to? I don't know how to put it really. But obviously, we're not seeing a homegrown thing because they're not aware. But you know, we're still seeing a decision made for them, mm. for the, the mm. planet. You know, by by enterprise. This is wrong. We're going to sort it out which again is a very sort of maybe modern day colonialist colonial mm. way of thinking or imperialist way of thinking. Mm. Perhaps to make that uh, a better pill to swallow for the audience. That's why we have the character we will eventually learn as Rianne. Um So it makes, makes it better for us to know that there is someone who disagrees with what Garrus is doing, uh, doesn't like what Malorians are taking, even though she doesn't really know what it is. She knows there are crates um, and she objects so that justifies the enterprise stepping in to some regard but yes you're right they're they are making it their own yeah business. i mean you, again you could argue, you know you could argue that you know uh, rianne plays the role of a sort of um government in exile or something that, that's asked for support from another other power you know that i mean again we're maybe stretching the the analogy here or the you know mm-hmm. but this was you could see it this way certainly i think well um we actually go down to the planet as we're moving through the scenes as we get to meeting rianne uh, who's got a very nifty little crossbow gun i want one of those those look pretty cool uh the little kind of flip open uh, and off it goes um completely useless but you know it it looked fun it it looked like something uh, that would be fun but they're armed with phasers she didn't stand a chance to begin with um uh, but uh, to pole stunt her they find out that her name is rianne they take her back to her flat her apartment wherever she might be and then archer then starts to get an idea of what's going on she's pointed out this garris owning a shop people are getting sick that there is perhaps to her at least some connection even though she can't prove it um it's again i mean if we come back to this idea that she is going to the un to ask for permission or to ask for help even though she doesn't know that archer is any position to do that um she doesn't have the evidence but her own testimony seems to be enough and that seems to be something that um it, it wouldn't stand up to the un the un if we gave them you know this person is upset uh, there's no evidence for what they say, but can we then go and take a military action, please? That's not going to work. Um, uh, but it seems to work, and it seems to be justification for Archer anyway. Uh, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, um, actually, there's a bit that you, you sort of left out, which was Trip breaking and entering. 
Yes. And I did wonder whether there'd be a bit of traitory going on there. You know, I wonder if that <laughs> might be, oh, yeah, Captain, our, uh, our break in. No problem. When I was a, a young man, this is the worst American accent ever. When I was a young man, I used to break in all the time and nick catfish, you know. <laughs> Um, yes, and, yeah. I, I was almost tempted to do a trade trade, but uh, Jen from my last episode uh, has uh, has broken that for a little bit. But I will try and and find some more trade trade just to prove that I was right at least for a little bit. Uh, but no, I mean he did his job. At least he opened the door. You know, if he tried and then failed, maybe that would have been a trade trade. And also, I think um, when when um, Archer talks to Rianne and says, you know, oh, we're picking up antiques. I mean, that must be the weakest excuse ever, mustn't it? I mean, seriously, that is really bad. And I think, we, as we, we might come on to later, I think he, he does a similar thing later on. And, yeah, he, it's it's pretty poor. <laughs> and also what I found funny was, you know, how quickly T'Pol stopped worrying about cultural contamination and just shot someone in the back, you know. There's no mucking around. You know, oh, that dude just shooting in the back with a laser gun. You know. <laughs> I found that quite amusing. She soon gave up on that, you know. Well, she just fainted. That's exactly what John yeah, said. Exactly, so it's fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he is a terrible liar. Although he does sort of tell a lie. I mean, you could justify it the other way, but he does say that he is an investigator from another city, which isn't a complete lie. Those are words. He is an explorer from another planet. Um, but yeah. she at least believes that lie. So he's not that bad at lying just yet. Um, I do like that once once they get into sort of a conversation with her and they find out about Garrus and they get a little bit more information, uh, they then call up to Reed uh, for a bit of a solution and a little bit of a sort of scan of the, the planet. And his instant response is, if we flattened it with a torpedo barrage, uh, I doubt we would do any damage. It's like, that's his first go-to. Let's, let's flatten the place with a torpedo and see what happens afterwards. Typical security man. Uh, any thoughts on Reed uh, and his yeah. solutions? I, I really, do you know what? Reed again is another one of those, those characters who is awful in lots of ways. Mm. <laughs> it, mm. It's not my favourite by any means. But there's this again when you come back to Enterprise and rewatch. There's a sort of there's something happen, nice about them, him and sort of something familiar and comforting about him and. <laughs> the way he reacts to stuff is 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 great really you know and i quite like it and I, and you know reed is is a funny one but um yeah i think you've spoken in previous episodes about you know being a very clipped british accent and, and, and an old <laughs> sort of uh, navy man and stuff and you know it's almost like how do americans see the british you know it's, it's a a total sort of cultural um trope or co co trope uh, cultural sort of idea which is so so wrong really but he sort of fits it nicely and, and yeah now re now re-watching the episodes I, I quite like him actually <laughs> yeah it's i think i appreciate one that he has a british accent and is british so at least that is something we're yeah. not pretending he's a frenchman from la bar france um but it's you know everything short of a cup of tea with a pinky finger out whilst he's delivering this briefing but he's a lot more gung-ho than i think brits uh wouldn't generally be uh you know if you think of guns you probably think maybe more americans uh but he really goes for it like he's already blown up two things in the last two episodes and now he wants to blow up a third one he wants to go for the hat trick he doesn't quite <laughs> get it this episode but um he, he sort of gets it later in the episode but it's not quite the same thing um 
there <laughs> is there's a reference from Topol uh, and saying that again the fear of alien abduction caused a bit of con- cultural problems for you when Trip then suggests you know beam them up to to the the ship and we can then figure out what's going on maybe cure the disease uh, and that that seems quite right um, you know that uh, they shouldn't do that that seems like a really bad idea to beam up a load of sick people onto a ship uh, that's going to cause too many questions maybe even start the religion of the enterprise mm-hmm. the archer the one uh, that would be something that we have seen in star trek yep. in other episodes and other series um, but any thoughts on you know risking that cultural contamination that taking the easy fix of just beam them up figure out what's wrong with them or go this long route and use rianne and her research instead I think it's, um, again, it fits quite nicely with where we are in the timeline. You know, there isn't the prime directive. There isn't the experience of what can happen. And I guess in a way, what would you do? You see people ill. The first thing you want to do is, is help them. And, and and how would you help them? You'd send them to the, the to the sick bay. So I think it's very understandable. Again, um, as we, we spoke about earlier, you know, it makes sense at this point, certainly. Hmm. Uh- Something else that makes sense for me is that we meet Garrus, and so far we've only heard Rianne's story, so maybe we should give him the benefit of the doubt. But in the first line he utters, he just comes across as a sleazy little salesman to me. I don't trust him from the second we meet him. It's like, oh, I think you want to buy something from my shop. Uh, I will might find someone else who can find it even better for you. And it's like, oh, stop giving me the sales line. Uh, it's, the, it's the thing I hate about retail. It's the reason why I wanted to get out of retail when I used to work in it. The idea that you have to go straight up to your customer and start selling them something, or at least selling them the experience of doing something. Hello, I'm Garrus. Welcome to my shop. Um, yeah, can't stand him. Uh, but um, any thoughts on meeting Garrus and this sort of uh, finding out that he's not got the right DNA and then he scans them and realises they don't have the DNA and they're talking whilst not being discovered by the other Akali in the shop. Uh, any thoughts on this scene? Yeah, actually, I, get, I think um, Amateur Collector was the thing that sprung to mind for me. Another awful excuse. I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> this is terrible, you know. And, and then the other thing that, that got me was, you know, why, first of all, why drill right in the middle of town? I mean, you might be right. It might be the only spot on the planet, but it seems highly unlikely. And also, why bother with like a, a front? You know, it's not like you're sort of, you know, just why bother with that, you know? Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a funny one, that. And, um, yeah, Garros is a... Again, he's he's a sort of stock character, isn't he? They needed a bad guy, and he was he played the guy. You know, the guy did a good job, really. He did, you know, he did the job, but he wasn't memorable or anything. He was just another stock sort of bad character or bad bad um, bad person. But yeah, no, the, the drilling in the middle of town really got to me actually. When I more I watched it, I watched it a few times in the run up to this, and mm. I was thinking, oh, you know. <laughs> surely surely (laughs) i mean no matter how quiet those machines must be you know the super duper alien drilling machines surely that's gonna make too much noise you know someone's gonna have to like stand outside the shop going (coughs) every time (laughs) it drills and every time it goes on it does seem very strange but yeah like i say maybe it's the only place on the planet that has it the shop just happened to be on top of it so he bought the shop started selling these awful masks and uh yeah people went for it yeah, it's it's quite amusing, isn't it? And again, why why a curio shop? Why an antique shop? You know, maybe he's a you know a historian back at home or something. But it's just yeah, it's, it's. I mean, again, I'm sure it probably there was about two minutes of thought about this. Oh, we put him in an antique shop, you know. But you know, 
it, yeah, it is quite amusing, really. I find it quite. And why, you know, why would you be open all the time? Why would you bother? <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, you might, you know, if you're going to do that, you That's might it. open the weekends only or something just to, you know, have a little <laughs> bit of cover. But, you know, you're not going to be in there all day. Well, no. maybe, maybe that, maybe he wasn't lying when he said that he was quite taken with the planet. You know, he, he liked it there. He then started scanning, and he realised this viridium's underneath this shop. I tell you what, I'll buy it. I'll open it up on the weekends, but then I can work during the week. And then people really loved it, and they kept on coming back. So it's like oh, now I've got to open up like seven days a week or whatever the Akali week is. And it's like, well, now I've got to carry on doing this. Now I've got to bring in some other guys. Uh, oh my, uh, my uh, cousin Jeff, he can come down, and then he can take the shop whilst I'm doing the drilling and it just spiraled from there yeah. and it just got out of hand maybe he wasn't a bad guy maybe he just wanted to take it whilst no one was looking uh you know they didn't know what it was they've got no use for it as a culture they can't drill for it and it just got out of hand and now you know he became a dodgy salesman of masks and that was it that's it just became his life poor old garris i think the thing is there's no excuse at the end for when he started franchising that, that's that was taking it too far i think he should have stopped there you know one shot you know <laughs> but you know not a franchise across across the whole province. Yeah, masks are us was just too much. It was yeah. a step too far. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we go back to Rianne's uh, workshop, her lab, and uh, T'Pol is really impressed with what she's doing. And this sort of leads on to a whole conversation with Archer and with Rianne, where she's making the tea, but it looks like she's doing a potion. Uh, and T'Pol is going around the room. She's using a little litmus paper and everything like this. And then it moves on to the next scene where there is Phlox and T'Pol examining her research. And Phlox is really impressed. And he comes up with a line about how there are thousands of species throughout all of the galaxy and they're all discovering science in their own way. Um, generally speaking, so all of this, so all the bits in the lab and all of that scene with T'Pol and Flux talking about how impressive it is that she's discovering science. Any thoughts on Rianne, the scientist? Um, it's something they seem to do, again, you know, without going back and, and going through them all and, and being certain, but you often get this sort of genius figure on a, a less developed planet that somehow they meet and they're able to sort of understand, you know, just because they're naturally brilliant, you know. So she, I'm not sure about Rianne really. It's, um, again, she's playing a role that she needs to do. She, she moves the story along, but, you know, she's a very trope character really. That sort of, you know, mm -hmm. genius that's stuck in a pre-industrial society, but would have been, as Flock says, you know, would have been a great doctor or whatever. And in the sick bay scene, all of, again, what I've written is just his flox is great. <laughs> I just love him in it. He's great. So yeah, that's all I got to. That's all I wrote down, really, to be honest with you. But yeah, you know, again, he just brings this this great life and sort of energy to it. So yeah, I'm I'm quite a fan. <laughs> <laughs> But that's what I do love. Whenever you see sort of videos from whether it be Carl Sagan or whether it be uh, Brian Cox now or, or anyone on the TV who is a science educator, they're always saying that, you know, you could take a thousand books away and burn them and there would be no more science. And then in a thousand years time, it would all come back again because it can be dem demonstrably proved. Um, the idea that all the aliens around the galaxy are discovering science in their own way, as Flock says, but they are, are at least investigating in the same rudimentary rules um, that they can still come to it. And that, that was something I, I enjoyed. And it's one of the reasons I come to Star Trek. You know, it is one of those ones, those series, uh, a, a very few 
science fiction series that celebrates science and doesn't just demonize it um you know it doesn't go straight to the the frankensteins and the the horror aspect or it doesn't go to um the you know the the use of a nuclear weapon or something worse uh you know science isn't like the crazy mad scientist trying to destroy us all it is celebrating that science is a good thing and can be approached by anyone uh, but you're right, she is the genius character who just happens to uh, find out where the Viridian is. She lives just down the road from Mask Masks Are Us, and she is investigating the plague that is infecting everybody. Uh, you know, it just happened to be that the Enterprise is in the corner. She just happened to be there. There just happens to be one source of Viridian on the entire planet. Uh, very, very, very uh, weird coincidence, coincidence going on here. But there we go. Again, like it's someone's writing this. Uh, they do discover that it is a lubricant that is getting into the water supply that would be too hard for her to discover, but Flock scan because he's got the a better equipment on board the Enterprise. Uh, a tetra cyanide. So uh, something that we, the audience, hearing cyanide would think, yeah, okay, that's a poison, that makes sense. Uh, whether that's an actual thing, I don't know. Uh, but... Uh, there's another scene. They're waiting for the crates to leave. They're going to do a bit of investigation. And it's the kiss to fix the translator scene. Um, <laughs> Kirk would be proud of this one, I'm yes. pretty sure. Uh, and I wonder if, uh, uh, oh, I'm fixing my translator. It became uh, in the parlance after that. Uh, you know, uh, hey, baby, you know, going over to the, the nightclubs back in Earth. You know, did you read that uh, report on Enterprise? You know, kind of care to fix my translator and just coming over and all that kind of stuff you know did this lead to some really awkward uh conversations in nightclubs back on earth and some really stupid pickup lines i don't know uh but any thoughts on the kiss scene well again i, I guess i'm gonna go back to what i've written as my notes and i've, I've written excuse for archers to kiss arg <laughs> <laughs> it just it doesn't work it doesn't no. work you know He's not Kirk, and, and Kirk, you know, again, going back to reality, I suppose, you know, it was the 60s and all that stuff, and, you know, we can all make excuses, I suppose, but, oh, just no. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't fit, he's he's a sort of Geordie character rather than a Kirk character, you know, he's the one, it just it shouldn't be happening, it's wrong. <laughs> I like that, yeah, okay, yeah, more of a Geordie than a Kirk, I, I like that, yeah. Uh, there are parts of the scene that I did like uh, the idea that the translator was in the midst of breaking you know the resolution may be not the best one and a bit icky but uh, the idea that it was in the middle of changing that he didn't do something else to cover up he needed to change the translator and the way she was saying the words you, you got the sense that she was talking about the dog that Archer was talking about and that she'd had perhaps a pet or something that was bought for her you could tell what she was saying just from her intonation so I really enjoyed the actress and the way she was portraying it and if it had been a love story for Archer and it had played out perhaps in that less icky way I could see these two getting along in the same way that Flox is impressed that she is discovering science in her own way she is a genius level intellect she is someone who is above the other Akali around her um, that she would be someone that Archer would maybe even come back to that perhaps this you know this was a planet they would come and revisit at some point I wouldn't have been um, against that idea based on 
the the chemistry that they'd had no pun intended in the lab um between each other um it just seemed that this scene was a bit forced that it was just an excuse for them to kiss and then have romance um if they'd done that a few episodes down the line you know they come back yeah. to akali because akali has something or you know something else other than viridian on board that would help them um it was nice it was cute it made mm. sense that they would attract each other but it just felt forced again uh not quite the sexy trek we've been seeing in previous episodes uh the forced uh gratuitous gel scenes and so forth but again the kiss just seemed like it didn't need to be there yeah absolutely i mean again i think you're right about the the translator you know that's quite good and again it fits in with this you know this we've just arrived on a planet for the first time you know this is the first sort of first contact really and these things you know they're right not to work you know I mean, again, I mean, the way he fixed it was maybe, you know, it's pretty quick, <laughs> to be fair, you know. But, you know, again, but I, it makes sense within the, again, within the time frame, within the story, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, we then follow the crates. We see the crates are being loaded onto a cart. Uh, it looks like Jeff, the other Malorian, is pulling the cart away. Uh, it's his cousin Jeff who had to do the weekdays. And he's going off and uh, taking it off into the woods to then be delivered again like you say why did he open the shop in the middle of town and then he has to go and deliver it into the woods um it's really weird because later on we're going to find out that the malorians do have a transporter because they beam them away at the end of the episode why can't they just beam the crates from inside the shop uh, you know they're outside the field yep. clearly because they are detectable yep. the enterprise can detect the the crates are there leave them on the roof and then beam them off from there no one's up there no one's going to see that or build a little enclosure so that they're not going to see the transporter beam or the flash of light or whatever you know why 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 did you need to do this whole like it felt like an alien abduction story you know the the the, the ufo is coming down beams them up and then takes yep. them away um it's a nice thing. It leads to a little bit of a tussle, a bit of a fist fight. You know, the, again, going back to Kirk, um, yeah. you know, the idea of you fighting the alien and punch peer, punch there, fires, phaser fight. Uh, she helps him out by saying, you know, John, look out and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's very tropey. It's a bit of action just to push it along, but it doesn't quite make any sense. Um, no. Any thoughts on this? The tussle scene. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just, again, I wrote down Action Man Archer. You know, it was a, a chance to sort of Kirkify him a bit more, you know. And um, what I found quite amusing, I don't know if you remember, and maybe this is a a bad example for our listeners outside of England or Britain, but there was um, the, the comic strip, the, um, and there was a episode they did about the Famous Five. It was a parody of the Famous Five. And yes. even the Brighton books, and there was this sort of scene where they're creeping around in the in the woods, and all you know, and the, the bad guys are there going secret plan, blah blah, you know, <laughs> and it was all a bit like that, you know, it was a bit like, <laughs> and, yeah, which yeah, made me laugh. I thought of that today when I was watching it. I thought, yeah, this is all a bit sort of like you know, putting it in there to sort of drive the thing forward. But you know, would you be talking about it? You wouldn't need to talk about it. You would know what you're there for. You know, you wouldn't be having a chat about it. You'd be like, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm here again on Friday, and you know, can I get paid now? Sort of thing, you know. Um, <laughs> and the only other thing I, I thought about really, or, or sort of wrote about it, was again, without going back and looking at the whole canon. But they, when when the um, the alien was revealed as wearing the mask and being sort of lizardy, I suppose he sort of, you know, is that a sort of 
bad guys look less human? Is that a, a thing in Trek, do you think, maybe? And, and is that sort of like, I don't know if racism is the right word, but mm. there's a sort of thing there where, you know, you know the, the Klingons, the Ferengi, mm. you know, the Cardassians, they're all sort of further away from humans than maybe the, um, like, well, the, the inhabitants of this planet, you know. They're very close. They've just got a couple of ridges and stuff. And yeah. the sort of further away you get from human-looking, tend to be the the bad guys i don't know maybe that's you know maybe i'm again maybe i'm sort of seeing something that isn't there but i just yeah that occurred to me that it's often the way i think mm. no I, it yeah it makes perfect sense and it, it the way that the mask is sort of half hanging off the face um you thought of comic strip i thought of v yes. the series v where we saw the aliens the the reptiles the reptile lizard people um and that they ripped the skin off and you see half the face it looked very similar to that they were slightly more grayish than the v aliens which seemed very green and were very lizard like it does make me think that lizard people we've had uh, uh, alien abductions We've had references to alien cultures. Was this episode actually all about conspiracy theories and undercutting them in that the Enterprise is actually saving us from this dark and stupid way of looking at the world and it's science that will save us and it's Rianne who's discovering science. Maybe it isn't about colonialism. Maybe it's not about all the things we think it is. It's just their way of saying, look, conspiracy theories are really dumb. This is what it would be if it actually happened and science will save you. So shut up and listen to Star Trek that's all it is maybe that's all this episode ever was do you know what I think you may have solved solved I think you may have finished we may have done our work here that's it yeah well uh, thanks so much for listening uh, all that remains is for me to set up oh no wait a minute I jumped to the end sorry <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, we were trying to figure this out. Uh, to the listeners here, we were sort of going backwards and forwards in the DMs on uh, Twitter, trying to figure out what exactly this episode was trying to say. And I just couldn't think of it until just now when we were talking about it. Uh, I, I thought of V ages ago when I, th I saw the episode, but it wasn't until you just said the the idea that, you know, lizard people, maybe it's racism and things like this. Yes, it's got to be conspiracy theories. It's literally the only thing I could think that makes any sense. Um John eventually comes clean and uh, says that, you know, I've seen this sort of thing before. This makes per perfect sense to me. I'm actually from uh, very far away. Uh, that uh, she says, why would you come here? We're so backward compared to you. Um, you know, uh, he comes back with a sense of uh, take away our technology and we're not so different. So again, coming back to your idea that you know, aliens who don't look human are not like them they are the bad guys but because we look like you you can trust us we're absolutely fine uh any more on that yeah i guess again i hadn't thought of that but you're right it takes it the other way doesn't it where you know she, he doesn't at any time reveal that the, the the sort of the um the lumps are prosthetics or anything so as far as she knows he looks exactly the same as her you know so that's that yeah i hadn't thought of that but that's a really interesting point i think um yeah maybe it's something that could be we could look into or i could look into and think about that because it, it, it does strike me that there's a there's something there definitely mm. um but right at this moment i can't think what it is <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we'll go away for two weeks and then yeah. we'll come back with the proper answer <laughs> so listeners tune in two weeks time uh, for part two of the no um they break into the factory again, or at least into the shop, and then into the factory. You would have think he would have uh, beefed up his security after the last visit, but there we go. Uh, they discover the, vidrid the Viridian plant and uh, the drilling that's going on. Uh, this actually seemed to fit the CGI 
for a change. Mm. In previous episodes, we've had, and we just had in the uh, Andorian in- incident, uh, a CGI where no one seemed to react to four humans and an Andorian walking into a secret Vulcan base. Uh, this at least was behind a sense of glass quite high up and no one seemed to notice them. So that made sense to me. Uh, there wasn't any alarm tripped by them going in. Uh, there was no security whatsoever. Garrus is clearly slipping up. Maybe he forgot to turn the security system on. You know, I've done that when I worked in retail and I got in, you know, told off for it. Maybe Jeff didn't do it. I don't know. Uh, just got yeah. into trouble. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Um, well, when you've been, been selling masks all day, you know, it's, you, that's you, could, it. you could be tired, you know. It's easy done. It's easy done. It's very true. Very true. Yeah, uh, you, you're all about the sales. You completely forget the basics. That's what it is. Uh, there's a big debate on what is the right button to press, blue or yellow. Uh, and this came back to the idea of languages and Hoshi. Wouldn't it have been more helpful to maybe have her before you go down and break into this facility? Um, but she's she's just as capable as Archer at this point. They are reduced down to, is it blue or is it yellow? How do you interpret the infograph? Uh, it's in, it's interesting that Malorians see the things exactly the same as we do, and they have a circle to show off what things are. Um, uh, any other thoughts on this whole debate of, like, we can go backwards and forwards and it's not going to be the same thing? Yeah, do you know what I thought? Again, I thought it's a, a good scene for this time period, this this moment, because... When you go to TNG and, and sort of DS9 and stuff, nobody has a problem at all. They land on a, new, a brand new ship from like, you know, from the from the Gamma Quadrant and they just go, oh, well, we just press that button and, that, and it just works. You know? <laughs> um, so I thought that was quite nice that actually for once they just didn't press the right button straight away. So again, whether that was a little nod to, to the future or not, I don't know, but I, I quite like that. Again, that felt quite realistic to me that, you know, you wouldn't have a clue, you know, and maybe if you'd been on a hundred different alien ships, you might have a chance from a bit of experience, but you know, you wouldn't, what would you, you would have to guess, you know. <laughs> but yeah, it's about, and I do like the fact that he pressed the button once thinking it was going to be the right one. It sets off an alarm and then it quickly taps the other button as fast as he possibly could and still doesn't get it to work. Um, yeah. it, it just made me think of all like the, the new technology that I ever get. And, uh, I always get it out of the packet and then realize I pressed the wrong button. And now I really want to try and make up for it. Um, the, there's now sort of a big rush to the end. Like uh, the Garrus comes up to the window. Uh, there didn't seem to be a platform there earlier when they were looking, and we saw the CGI shot of the factory, but there's one now, and Garrus is standing there, and he's doing the typical evil man, you should have helped us, Archer, and all this sort of thing. Uh, and now there's a big rush to the finish. There's the action scenes of how are we going to solve this problem? Uh, a Malorian ship suddenly appears, even though uh, just two episodes ago, uh, Reed suggested that maybe we should scan for this kind of thing so it doesn't happen again. They clearly didn't learn their lessons because they didn't scan for a ship on just the other side of a planet. Uh, but they can detect the you know the moons and everything else from miles and miles away, but they didn't check on the other side of the planet. Uh, it comes out, there's a phase of fight, there's a big old fight. This whole sequence, it, it's all in one, really. It just it, It's 20 minutes of the episode, try, right at the very end. The big solution is that they eventually disable the, the shield they beam up the device the reactor into space and use that as a detonation bomb so reed does get to blow something up three times in a row he's done the hat trick now um any thoughts on the old the whole action scene do you feel it was a bit forced there wasn't much jeopardy or was it actually enough did it do its job um that's a really interesting one i think yeah it did do its job of course it did but um i, I wondered actually there was 
there was a bit in there where Topolsa about getting ready to leave orbit and 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 uh, Trip jumps in really aggressively. And again, we're looking at that that workplace bullying again, you know. And then we had this bit where um, where where to pull gets them to, to to beam the the power unit out into into space and blow. And I wondered whether that should be known as to to, to pole move maneuver. You know, <laughs> you know, we got we got the sort of you know the Riker maneuver and stuff. So we should have a to pole maneuver. I think um, that sounds good. And also, just going back slightly to when they're in the shop talking to Garrus and um, the Tellarite, he mentions the Tellarite, and I wonder whether that's the first mention in, in mm. sort of chronological order of Tellarites. As far as I know, yes. Um, as we were going through, uh, I couldn't think of any other Tellarites that had been mentioned in previous episodes. Uh, they were never established in any of the TS, TOS uh, episodes we've seen so far. I th- no, I don't think so. I think even the TNG episodes where they would have dropped something like that in, uh, I can't think of anything. Mm. So, yeah, I think you're right. This is the first canonical mention of the Tellarites. And also, I think um, the, the Garros' attitude, uh, the few thousand, he said there's only like it's 500 million and only, only a few thousand might be missed. Again, that if we want to we want to link it to colonialism, that's an absolute mm. classic colonial attitude, you know. Yes. It's, it's only natives. It doesn't matter sort of thing, you know. So, um yeah, and I think actually to Paul, you know, she had a moment which was quite nice because she'd been getting quite a lot of grief in this um, this episode, and she, you know, she she did. She stood up, she said, "No, I'm I'm in charge here." Beam it out. She had the idea and stuff. So I thought that was quite a nice sort of, you know, she got her own back almost, or she sort of proved it despite the the bullying she she got through it. So so I thought that was quite good. Yeah, and this is where I'm going to do hashtag traitred. It's time you learn to weigh the possible repercussions of your actions. You've always been impulsive. One pan-fried catfish. I'll show you to the nearest airlock. Maybe this will teach you a lesson. Uh, this is the point where it seemed like he jumped to conclusions far too quickly. Uh, I know that Topol is arguing semantics. I told him to prepare to leave for audit orbit, not say leave orbit. Uh, but even if she had ordered to leave orbit, that would have made a lot more sense than perhaps staying around and trying to engage a foe that they cannot uh, dent. They can't make a dent in at all. Their torpedoes are completely effective, as Reed has just said. Uh, tactically, it would make sense for them to retreat. Uh, you know, uh, Archer could take care of himself. As far as they're concerned at this point, he's dead, according to Garrus. So they have no reason to stay. Uh, they want to protect um, the Akali, maybe. They they want to act out of some sort of um, uh, moral way. Uh, but they, they have no reason to stay, and they should come back and maybe think of another plan. Fortunately, T'Pol comes up with her, um, her plan in the end. But yeah, I, I am dinging uh, Trip for this one. This is part of my trade trade. He leapt straight into the negativity there. Um, it did make me think that maybe this episode is better placed if you were to watch it two episodes earlier, uh, before Breaking Ice, uh, maybe either after or before Andorian Incident, so that the two of those characters haven't had that really nice uh, character moment in Breaking the Ice, where they're starting to trust each other. It seemed like, oh, wait a minute, the writers for this episode were told to react this way before we got here, and they'd muddled them up. Uh, the, uh, talking of the episode placement, um, as you found out when you did the research as well, uh, and I saw on IMDb as well, that this is the episode that they were in the process of filming and making whilst the Twin Towers have fallen. So this is whilst 9-11 has just happened. The production is still happening. 
Um, I remember reading that the producer and some of the guys behind the scenes thought that they'd seen the light go out of the actor's eyes, that their enthusiasm for doing the the Star Trek show um, had gone and they didn't want to perform that week. Uh, I watched this episode through several times trying to pinpoint where it might have been. It seems a bit <laughs> a bit macabre to do that, but see if there was a difference there. And as far as I know, every single one was a trooper. Every single one hid it really well. The acting on here does not show that this is the episode, that uh, that, that event happened, which would have been completely shocking to everyone on the crew. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with you, actually. I, yeah, I did the same thing. I sort of watched trying to see that on it. You know, I'm amazed they managed to do it, and I'm amazed. In fact, I'm amazed they made them do it. To be honest with you, but um, yeah, I, I don't think if if there is any of that, I didn't notice it. And, and you, as you say, it's quite an achievement to have managed to to get through it full stop. Let alone to produce. And uh, you know, what I think is probably quite an enjoyable episode, really. Mm. Yeah, it it doesn't show the markings of it. It doesn't show that maybe they changed the direction or even rewrote the episode to maybe even try and make a comment on it, which you think that they might have tried to do, uh, you know, got them in for reshoots at least. Uh, they detonate the, the antimatter warhead. You know, you think, oh, wait a minute, explosions, that doesn't seem like a good idea. If we're building this, you know, what are we going to do in this episode? Admittedly, Star Trek is all about explosions. They're not, never going to explore it and, and not going to blow something up at the same time. Uh, I don't think Reed would stand for it if they did. Uh, but, um, you know, it's... It's something that I thought would happen. I thought maybe there was some change to it, but the whole episode doesn't feel like something where no. a traumatic event has happened. No. Uh, speaking of the trauma, we've uh, exploded the antimatter reactor. We've destroyed or at least crippled uh, the Akali's uh, ability to uh, mine this planet and uh, taken it away from them. There's now a phaser fight in the streets between Garrus and uh, from Archer as well. Uh, it's again Rianne who comes up with the solution to shoot the, the little residue that's inside the oil lamps to explode them. Uh, again, very fortunate that she's there and knows this, uh, the, how the street lamps work. Um, any thoughts on, you know, what would this have done? Talk about cultural contamination. Well, yes, I mean, I've, again, my note says can cultural contamination out the window. You know, this is <laughs> like, you know, full on, we don't care. Um, yeah, I think you know it would be the talk of the town. That's for sure, wouldn't it? For for quite a while, and and, and yeah, and Rianne probably would be be asked questions. I would imagine. And again, this is one of the the problems, I suppose, with episodic television or episodic Star Trek is that you now we just leave, and, and it would be quite fascinating in a way to see the next six months in that area of the town or that that province or whatever, however far it would spread at that point. But it would be quite fascinating to see what what reverberations there were mm. um yeah so that yeah but the, yeah the cultural contamination is definitely uh yeah no one's worried about that are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it, i just wondered you know did did rianne then set up their own version of the men in black after that incident yeah. and she was trying to to mitigate it so, oh yeah don't worry they were it was a uh, it was an all act it was a street performance and it's just lights and camera trickery uh don't worry about it it's okay uh, you know, the camera hasn't been invented, but it was camera trickery. It's fine. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it goes. It goes into those conspiracy theories yet again. Yeah. Uh, you know, you never see. You never see the aliens shooting phasers down the street. Uh, you know, down in uh, Chatham High Street, just down the road from me. Uh, you know, if that was to happen, that would probably convince us then there are aliens. But yeah, it's not going to happen. I'll be honest. Although, I've been. I've been out in Chatham High Street a few times, and, and I'm not sure. I, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. 
It's very true. After a few pints <laughs> in the local, that's it. We ignite the oil. The yeah. uh, Malorians are, are uh, defeated. Archer's standing there victorious with the phase pistol pointed down at him. They're about to leave, and he just uh, gives them the little uh, John Wayne kind of move of like, you know, they're done now. We fixed your wagon, ma'am. And uh, they beam back up. Again, like I say, the transporter works. They have a transporter just like Enterprise. Why they didn't beam the antimatter reactor when it was in space out the way, I don't know. Um, but or, or have some sort of protection from that being beamed out. But there we go. And uh, we now find out that it is July 21st, 2151. So we've got a little timestamp as well. Uh, so that was just uh, a month ago and 130 years from now. So there we go. That's not too bad. Um they get a cure. Archer goes down to the planet after everything's sorted. We are now finding out that the Vulcans are actually going to pop by every now and then to make sure they're okay. Uh, so maybe that, maybe this is the start of their Men in Black program. Brienne uh, opens up her own Section 31 inside the Curiosity Shop, and the Vulcans just beam down every now and then, and they are the Men in Black, and they're going around and erasing people's memories, and maybe that's how it gets started. Who knows? She's perverting her own science to prevent the truth from getting out there. Um, I mean, but, I, I found uh, it quite amusing that that they just leave, you know, because Archer told them to. You know, they just, <laughs> they just go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you won. <laughs> Why wouldn't they send down, you know, Jeff down from from the ship, you know, and all his mates to, you know, to sort it out, sort of thing? And you know, but no, that's okay. Yes. We we'll, we'll just go. Fair yeah, enough. You won. <laughs> the Vulcans turned up. Oh no, the Vulcans are going to yeah. stop us now. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, very true, very true, but. It it does seem odd that again the placement of this episode we just destabilised the Vulcans and the Andorians by uh, giving away their position in the the Andorian incident. Why exactly the Vulcans are listening to Archer right now? That seems a bit strange. Uh, they don't exactly owe him any favours right now. Uh, they're not. He's not their favourite person, uh, unless it was Vanek. Maybe Vanek uh, is now a, a pro Archer man from. Uh, breaking the ice and he's the one who has to come in it's like oh jonathan's been here hasn't he oh, um, he caused this trouble i'm gonna have to come in and solve this problem again um that would be funny i would like to see that as a little cutaway scene it's just vanik who turns up and say we meet again captain archer <laughs> um yeah there we go that's a short trek in the making isn't it yes <laughs> um I do like the little smooth line, though, at the end. You know, I doubt any other visit to another planet will be this memorable. Oh, what oh, a smooth yeah, talker. Yeah, oh, awful. What a... Again, oh, I wrote... Silver for... Tongue Archer. Yeah, for my notes, I wrote yuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Although, maybe that just comes from a jealousy from my point. I was never that smooth, so... That's you know, true. And I, ne I never will be, so there we go. Um, that is it for the episode, and we end at the episode's time. Uh, no timestamps or anything like that. So that is our L. We have located the point in time. It is July 21st, 2151. And uh, we move on to our next criteria, which is C, consequences. Is there anything from this episode that you think will uh, change how Starfleet operates? Any uh, protocols that might be drawn up because of it? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think maybe not because of this just this particular mission but certainly if you add um the communicator which is a season two episode i think you know add that and a few other things you know we, we're seeing the birth of the prime directive there's no there's no doubt about that mm. yeah it, it's a 
big part of this episode from the moment that T'Pol opens her mouth first thing in the episode. It's, we have a protocol, we have a standard way of responding to this. You would be advised to, to adopt your own program. That's it, straight away. Uh, they clearly didn't listen to the consequences from the other episode from Reed, and so they still need to scan for a vessel before entering orbit. That might be a good idea. Uh, unless they had a cloaking device, and then that would be fine, but they didn't mention it, so I'm going to hold it against them on that one. Um, any other consequences? Maybe uh, automatically scan for uh, yeah. uh, antimatter reactors or Viridian or something that might be quite uh, a, a big resource to mine in the area, maybe? Yeah, I guess there's also the, the you know the potential consequences for the planet, or for, certainly for that that province or that area. You know that would have been interesting to explore, but you know we, we never know on that one. Mm. Yeah, if you you know come back to this planet, maybe even uh, discovery. Now that they're in the 31st century, we can really see how a planet this far behind where the Enterprise and Starfleet are, how far they have come in a thousand years. You could see maybe the Akali are now if not at the same level as the NX-01 program, they are about to make space flight. You could come back to a civilization like this where having a resource like Viridian that hadn't already been taken from them you know, a thousand years before would have been really useful to them now because mm. they could have used it to propel their rockets or build all kinds of technology. They had something stolen from them that they had no use of then but would certainly want to use a thousand years from now. Uh, that would be really interesting to see what the consequences were of that. Uh, that um, once it's revealed that aliens were on our planet yep. and a long time ago uh, the humans saved us, so we joined the Federation, blah, 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 blah. Um, to see what the knock-on effect is that, you know, you took our land, you took our pieces, our resources. Uh, we want reparations. Maybe that's something that could be brought in. That could be a very relevant story yeah. to tell of the plight of the Akali, yeah. of having... Uh, something taken from them when they didn't realize that there's perhaps a cultural erosion yeah. uh, story yeah. aspect to it. Absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that would be a fascinating episode or a fascinating story to tell because, you know, as you say, I mean, you know, without other than the few people that witnessed the sort of shootout and stuff and, you know, the vast majority of the population probably have no idea at the time. But as you say, there was... There was stuff going on. There was a, a consequence. There was a a result of of um, Garros being there. So you know what was that? Was as you say, well, if it is the only place uh, where they could mine, then you know potentially they, they as you say, a thousand years time that they're they're lacking what they need. You know, so yeah, I think there's something there's something in that, and something that maybe you know newer Trek could explore. You know, that, that would be. You know, I've noticed. I think I think a lot of people feel that new Trek is very aware of canon and very aware of what come, has come before so you know that would be you know, a fascinating episode to, to watch mm. particularly as the Malorians uh, I'm sad to say in my 24th century bubble no longer exist they are gone they were wiped out by a little uh, probe called Nomad hmm, never heard of it yet maybe I'll come to that in a few hundred years uh, but they were wiped out so they're no longer around to pay reparations to the Akali so that mm. could be an interesting thing it's like the, you know the people who actually did the damage to your culture are no longer around but maybe you still need to pay them back that would be a very yeah. relevant 
relevant topic to stuff yes. that we've seen in the TV, uh, you know, news broadcast right now yeah. in history. We are seeing that right now, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it is reparations in that regard, whether it's reparations to the Native Americans, whether it was reparations, you know, thinking again back to the Spanish, the conquistadors, paying back the gold to the Incas and the Aztecs, you know, and South America and what they did back there. Um, yeah. British Empire, enough said. Everything we did needs to be reparations there. There's so many aspects to this story that were never brought into this episode. Mm. And again, that was, it wasn't really in the thinking at the time, so maybe yeah. that wasn't what they wanted to go for. But there is so much you could come back to in that regard. I think that kind of feeds into alterations, our yeah. next thing. Uh, is there anything you would want to see expanded? Would you want to come back to the Akali homeworld? Would make you see the Melorians again? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of of that. You know, I like the idea of seeing them. You know, because it's the it's the one thing about sort of you know TOS, TNG, etc. You know, that episodic thing is is a shame in some ways because I mean, like um, with with Picard and playing the flute. I can't think of the episode. It's only a really famous episode, but you know. <laughs> um, you know, I would love to have seen him carry on that more regularly through this, you know, that sort of thing. So I think, and I think that potentially is what, what could happen with, with Picard now and, and, and Discovery and Strange New Worlds, although, you know, they have said it's quite episodic, but there's mm. certainly an aspect of um, of an overarching story. So, yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, I think uh, alterations, mm. I mean, again, of the ap actual episode, you know, it's, I think it's a reasonable enjoyable first season of star trek of any star trek really other than maybe tos which was probably the best season of tos but you know it's a pretty typical enjoyable episode really so mm. it is what it is we move on to the next one sort of thing i think yeah yeah it, it that's the same here i i enjoyed it i would come back to this episode in the future rewatch there's nothing from it that i need to know in the future but it's it's a fun little story that again as you've said earlier they could only really tell with the enterprise crew mm. there is this uncertainty of the prime directive there isn't really a protocol for this but they know they want to do something they want to help the akali out they don't agree with what garris is doing he's the slimy sales guy in the shop they need to stop this um you know maybe maybe there's an anti-capitalist message in here i don't know but there we go um <laughs> but, i think we're, we're maybe pushing pushing things too far there but i know what you mean yeah. it's it's so <laughs> tempting isn't it? it's one of the things i enjoy about star trek you know it's so tempting to to see these things going on and sometimes i mean with tos you know there were some episodes were about you know about racism were about stuff you know but i think often they're the episodes really they're they're about a story but the things that the, the people that write it you know the, in their minds and stuff influence more than sort of being directly about that there are exceptions to that but you know it's just yeah it's just enjoyable really and um yeah, I think it. We could, we could, we could spend. You know, we could spend the next two hours talking about this, and we still <laughs> wouldn't know. We'd have to. You know, there's no. There's who knows, but it's yeah. interesting to see these ideas. Yeah. Well, on that regard, then uh, let's go to the last criteria, which is recommendations. First of all, do we recommend to Star Trek fans this episode? Yes, I think I do because of particularly because of the birth of the Prime Directive. I think as a story, it's okay. It's not brilliant. It's not awful. It's a typical, as I say, first season Star Trek episode. So no, I don't recommend it as such as an episode, 
But I think for an understanding of where we go in the next sort of couple of two or three hundred years, it plays a part, definitely. Yeah, I thought that other than the relationship between T'Pol and Trip in that one scene where they're they're bickering at each other, which seemed out of place now, given what we've already had in the previous two episodes, that seemed to be something that should have happened earlier. So it puts that episode earlier. And that's the good thing about these episodes, that they could be plugged out yeah. and then moved forward. There is no consequence in that regard. Um, it is a good episode. It does do your typical Star Trek thing, and it brings up a problem and the crew solve it, as you say. Uh, so it, it is good Star Trek, but it isn't a great episode. It's not one of those ones that you say, oh, Civilization, what a great one. That's going to be in my top 10. No, I'm not really going to come back to this one. Um, it's it's not going to be the, the sit-down, feel-good episode. Uh, whether it's off-the-wall silly with a couple of tri- tribbles, or yeah. whether it is the deep, you know, deep philosophical inner light uh, you know, just like, thank, you. Back to you. thank you. There you go. Uh, the one, the one with the flute, and uh, the, or is it one with pew pews? Like your best of both worlds. You know, it's never one you're going to come back to, but it is a good episode. So yeah, I think we're both in agreement. We yeah. like it. We yeah. would recommend it, but not necessarily as the prime episode of Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. To non-Star Trek fans, do you think this is a good introduction? Is this part of maybe the? The brainwashing kit, you know, oh, see what the, the crew of the Enterprise can do. And this is the limitations, perhaps, of the universe. So you understand what they can and can't do. Mm, do you know what? I was thinking about this earlier, and I'm not sure I would recommend any first season Star Trek Ooh. episode, almost. Other than maybe on TOS. But then TOS, of course, the problem with TOS now is looking at it from a 21st century perspective. It's It's difficult, to say the least. So... I think the storytelling is very good, but there, you know, there's, there's some major issues. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm not. Uh, I, I, you know, I think first season Star Trek is is a tricky one. I, you know, and that's again without me having sat down and watched them all in the last couple of weeks to make sure I was right. But my general feeling is I wouldn't recommend a first season episode to to anyone of just about any any uh, series Ooh. so far. Interesting. I like it. I'm just going to have to get you back every week for the first season just to say, would you recommend this one, though? Would this break your... Is this the straw that breaks the camel's back on your rule? Um, so if I've got trip hatred, you've got season one dislike or season one non-recommendation. Yeah. I'm going to try and think of a hashtag for this. I'll I'll give it some thought and then put it in Twitter. But there we go. Uh, not recommending season one. I'll have to think of a, a hashtag for that. But I like that. Okay. Um, personally, I don't think I'll be recommending it to non-Star Trek fans because it does kind of rely on you knowing a few things. You need to know what a prime directive is for this to be a, you know, an episode that introduces it. Uh, unlike uh, Breaking the Ice, where we got to uh, have the crew record their thoughts back to the school back home on Earth, uh, there was a good introduction not only to the characters, but the world of Star Trek. How is this mission going ahead? How do they feed and clothe themselves and keep themselves going for however long this mission is going to be? It answered a few basic questions. This one, you kind of have to know what Star mm. Trek has done in the past to really appreciate what this episode is doing. Uh, so to Star Trek fans, we understand why it's a good episode, but not a great episode. But to someone fresh into it, I don't think you could you could turn someone into a no. Trekkie with this episode. Uh, so yeah, I'm in, in agreement. I, I wouldn't recommend to a non-Star Trek fan. I guess the only thing, the only sort of saving grace maybe that I'm thinking about now, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to go back on my recommendation, but 
it was almost it's a very TOS episode without the, the the very dodgy sort of sexual politics and all that sort of stuff. You know, it's it's it is a, they land at a planet or they arrive at a planet. There's an issue. They go down. They solve it and they go away. So it's got that structure, the classic structure, but I don't mm. think it's enough to save it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so it's it's almost like uh, rewriting TOS. Uh, you know, you, you can't watch those '60s episodes. There's lots of problems. Here, here's something we made in 2001. It's a little bit more updated for you, but it's the same basic idea. So that yeah, that could be an interesting project. So, uh, is this sort of like a, a TOS apology episode? So this is like the replacement episode, you know, uh, you, know you know, season one, episode six on TOS, you just replace it with this one. It's fine. It, it's basic, same idea. Just yeah, go for that. Yeah. I mean, it just occurs to me, mm. I don't know if you saw on Twitter, but there's been that um, video of, of Kurt, uh, Picard and um, Beverly Crusher doing the dance to um, yes. uh, Dirty Dancing, I think it is, isn't it? And you could mm-hmm. almost do that. You, if you could take the episode and replace Archer's <laughs> face with Kirk's face, you know, and, and sort of Floxes with, with McCoy's, you know. You could you could sort of get away with it, you know. <laughs> well, that would take some faith of the heart to get through that. I <laughs> it think. Would, yeah. Definitely, yeah. definitely. You definitely need, I think, to be a fan to truly appreciate. That. <laughs> but no, I like the idea. That's very cool. Um, maybe we should do that. Maybe that's you know, when I'm finished with this podcast in about fifty years time, <laughs> um, then maybe that's my next thing. How would I replace the episodes? But there we go. But no. Th- uh brilliant well uh it's already nine o'clock yes. so we've done over an hour and a half so i'm sorry to have kept you no, uh, but thank you very much other dan h from the podcast world um are from academic trek do tri- check it out it is fantastic and to listen to all of these academics who are using trek in new ways just like thousands of species discovering science in their own little way do you see i wrote that note that down was in my great notes. mate well done thank you very I much about that. really good thank you right all that remains is for me to do the setup for the next episode join me next time for season three episode 11 season one episode nine of enterprise as we go to fortunate sun thank you very much for listening and i'll see you in the next time stream i hope you've enjoyed the show please remember to like subscribe and review wherever you listen to it if you would like to be a guest in the future or give feedback you can contact me by either searching for the Temporal Trek Podcast Facebook page or find me on Twitter at Rider underscore Coattail. Also search the Temporal Trek Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at Daniel underscore Hitch underscore Writer. All the timestamps for the show can be found at ridingcoattails.simplesite.com. The scripted elements of the show are a work of pure fan fiction and any views and opinions expressed in the episode discussions are my own or that of the guest. They do not reflect the rights holders of Star Trek. Any Star Trek sound effects or music are used under the terms of fair use and are not my own work. The intro music, Birthright by Audio Binger, is royalty-free from the Free Music Archive. Check out their work and others at freemusicarchive.com. The Temple Trek is a free podcast with no Patreon or sponsorship. However, if you would like to support the show, you can find my books by searching Daniel Peter Hitch on Amazon. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you in the next time stream.